Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. It's the sound of the season, but it used to be the taste of the season, too. Why don't we eat chestnuts like we used to? Newsletter editor Francesca DeBecco is here to tell us about how the American chestnut tree was once rooted right here in Appalachia and how it could be making a comeback. It's Wednesday, December 21st. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Francesca, I know you've been doing a a very deep dive into chestnut history for us. I've personally never roasted chestnuts over an open fire, but have you? No, never. And honestly, I don't know anyone who has. Me either. It's still, I feel like it's still sort of a classic like image associated with the holidays, though. Right. Like, as soon as we hear that opening line from Nat King Cole, it like, <laughs> it officially feels like Christmas yeah, time. Yeah. And that, like, that's really what sort of made me question um, for something that's so symbolic of the holiday, like, why don't we do this anymore? The Christmas song was written in 1945 by Robert Wells and Mel Torme. And this was a moment in history when Americans would have remembered a time when chestnuts were a more common ingredient in seasonal dishes like stuffings and souffles. Only ever maybe like had walnuts in my stuffing. Um, It's still pretty common, though, to eat chestnuts in other countries, though, right? Like, but why not here? It is. You know, they're common. There are common street food in like Taiwan, for example, in parts of Europe during the holidays, especially, uh, but not so much here. Like you can still buy them in the market, but they're chestnuts that are imported from Italy or parts of Asia. And this is because in the beginning of the 20th century, a blight wiped out the American chestnut trees. Um, they towered throughout all of the eastern U.S. forest, um, nearly 200 million acres from southern Maine to Georgia. Now like that I think about it, I've never seen a chestnut tree. I have seen, um, I'm getting it confused with the buckeye trees like that are in <laughs> Ohio. But uh, what, what do chestnut trees look like? Well, they were giant. Like they grew up to 100 feet tall and more than 10 feet in diameter. The chestnuts are, you know, in these round spiky burrs that fall to the ground. So that's where, you know, you'd find the fruit. So these were like really prevalent at some point throughout our region. Yeah. uh, For communities in Appalachia, the chestnut tree was a way of life. It was a food source during fall and winter months, uh, feed for livestock. It supported wildlife and game animals like turkey and deer. And mountain people, they would even collect chestnuts and trade them at local stores for other goods. Not to mention the actual tree itself. The lumber uh, was sturdy and rot resistant. So it was 
ideal for um, cabins, barns, fences, even coffins. That's a versatile tree. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> it had so many uses. Um, it was often referred to as the cradle-to-grave species because it was quite literally used for both of those things and all of life in between. Like, can you imagine this celebrated and distinguished tree that was like so grand and influential to daily life, just just gone? So Blight wiped it out. But is the American chestnut tree, it's just, it's totally gone? Like it's extinct? You know, that's a really good question. So the Department of Agriculture considers the American chestnut tree to be functionally extinct, but you still might find a rare one in the woods. It just only grows so much before the disease starts affecting it. But the cool thing is, is that uh, researchers, including folks from the American Chestnut Foundation, are working to restore the tree to our native woodlands. So if the disease is still out there, though, like, how is that possible? Well, researchers are working on two main approaches. The first is genetically crossing the American chestnut tree with other species that show resistance to this fungus, like, for example, the Chinese chestnut tree. The second method is a genetic modification, a way to help the tree's immune system fight the blight. I talked to Sarah Fitzsimmons from the American Chestnut Foundation on the phone. She works out of Penn State University, and she explained the process of creating Darling 58, which is a genetically engineered American chestnut tree. You know, she did it in more sciencey terms than, <laughs> than I could give you. Um, and just a heads up, she did apologize for some kids in the background. They were at home when they were dealing with some bad weather that day. It is the result of basically 30 years of research to get to this point. The first thing you got to do is find a gene that confers resistance. Then you have to figure out how to get that gene into the species of interest, which in this case is American chestnut. And so the gene that was chosen is something called oxalic oxidase. It's a gene for wheat. Um, and the reason that works is because the chestnut blight fungus produces oxalic acid. This gene neutralizes that acid so that the fungus then can't attack the tree. So this gene, this oxygene, does not kill the fungus. It just keeps it from producing a material that kills chestnut tree cells. Wow. So that gene is then inserted into chestnut trees, actually into chestnut embryos, through a process called agrobacterium-mediated transformation. And I always just like to say that because I think it's really it's a fascinating process. And basically, it's using a bacterium, agrobacterium, to uh, transfer the plasma that you've created with that gene into the tissue of choice. And it's a very common transgenic method for, for getting genes of interest into, into other species. Yeah, that was very sciencey. <laughs> Do you like to dance? Look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be 
judging yins, and so will everyone else there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm because this is a theme party. You want to come dressed to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. What scientists do is is amazing and really cool. Um, but does this mean that we could see American chestnut trees like thriving again here on our soil? Yes and no. Um, it will probably take some generations before it really flourishes. Mm. But Fitzsimmons says that this is a really exciting time in the world of chestnuts. The U.S. Department of Agriculture and Plant Health Inspection Service started evaluating the safety of Darling 58, you know, that special breed of the genetically modified chestnut tree we were talking about. Then in 2021, they released a notice of intent. And just within the last month, they released draft documents of the plant pest risk assessment and environmental impact statement. Uh, without having to make you say that again, what is that? <laughs> yeah, so basically it's the decision that they're going to make saying that there will be positive benefits or no benefits, meaning no negative impacts of releasing this Darling 58 tree into the wild. And it's actually open for public comment right now. That's very cool. Can our listeners uh, support this? Yeah, we can drop a link in the show notes. Um, the public comment period closes on December 27th. So if you, you know, want to support, uh, go leave a comment. Um, Fitzsimmons says that, you know, the chestnut tree was able to provide so many things in one good package. And much like being able to do a lot of things with one tree, you know, our forests need diversity. Like the ecosystem thrives on diversity of native species. One of these efforts take place in our area? Like, could anyone grow a chestnut tree in their backyard? Here's what Sarah Fitzsimmons said. We plan on it. We plan on having um, multiple seed orchards so that we can service various locations with diversified material adapted to specific locations. And so um, what we've been doing over the past three or four years with our partners at ESF is finding um, either finding wild Americans that we breed on in the wild or already have conserved in in these germplasm orchards that we can then take Darlene's 58 pollen, put on those trees and say, all right, this, these seeds have a background from the Allegheny Plateau. These seeds have a background from the Piedmont of Maryland. These seeds have a background from, you know, Western West Virginia and Southeastern Ohio so that we can have different populations adapted to specific seed zones that we can then give to landowners, both public and private, um, and, and no, you know, yes, these seeds are adapted to your location and will do best in your area. She also said that the American Chestnut Foundation is looking to find some wild trees in our area. So if you like hiking, uh, you could actually be a big help. The tree doesn't have to be that big, but they're looking for unique lines that they can use for diversification based on specific locations. So something to keep in mind if you're out in your backyard. <laughs> yeah, that is really cool. I, I kind of want to try some chestnuts. I've never, ever had them. I don't know even what the flavor is like. 
Well, you know, ever since I started researching this, I've been really interested in how local restaurants feature the chestnut in Mm. their dishes. A few years back, Millie's was making a chestnut ice cream with hints of maple and orange zest. Mm. I talked to the co-owner, Ted Townsend, at the time, and he's quite the chestnut aficionado. Um, He said that he dreams of being an old man with a chestnut cart roasting on a snowy corner of the street, you know, wearing fingerless gloves (laughs) and smoking many cigars. (laughs) I like that for him. And, you know, at my uh, local cocktail bar, Leo, a public house on Pittsburgh's north side, the owner, Michael, has a chestnut-infused bourbon on the menu for a holiday special. So that's a really cool thing to try. And one that I am really looking forward to trying is a whiskey-braised chestnut pasta from Scratch & Co. in Troy Hill. Love them. That all sounds amazing. And though I've never had the chestnut, I can imagine that nutty flavor with like all of these other, the orange zest and the, yeah, all these other really good flavors. That right? sounds so good. Yeah. And you know, today people go blueberry picking or apple harvesting, but it used to be a very similar thing with chestnuts. And I hope that can happen again someday. And it will again be more than a holiday relic and a line in a song. Thanks for this, Francesca. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. Thanks for letting me (laughs) uh, go off about chestnuts. (laughs) A little more news before you go. After much discussion, some of it on this podcast, the city budget has been passed. Uh, The Pittsburgh City Council unanimously approved the $800 million allocation for next year. It also updated the American Rescue Plan Act spending plan. The change puts more money into infrastructure, Pittsburgh parks, and the land bank. The big news is there's no tax increase. And four red line stops on the T are getting a makeover. The U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Transit Administration is giving $28.4 million to make the Westfield, Shiras, St. Anne, and Bethel Village stops more accessible. The improvements will include ramps, higher platforms, and shelters. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you were nutty about this episode, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our Hey Pittsburgh newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city, so we'll see you then. I did too much with that question. A little too much razzle-dazzle. Let me take it back.